Uh, welcome to this edition of On Tap, presented by FCSI of the Americas. I'm Wade Kaler, Executive Director. On Tap this week, I get to welcome one of the most interesting members of FCSI. His backstory and beginning here in the USA are amazing, and he's become one of the go-to consultants for many top chefs. He's also one of the best-dressed consultants every time I see him. Please welcome the founding principal of UE Design, Mr. Jimmy Yui. Hi, Jimmy. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Wade. Absolutely. I've been looking forward to talking to you for a long time. We've known each other for a long time. And uh, like I said, you are one of the most best dressed people I ever see when we're at events. So uh, uh, not today, though, huh? No, that's OK. <laughs> I am, I'm dressed for COVID today. That's right. Well, we all dress like that for COVID, even myself in a polo. So we're all good for today. Well, the question is, what are you what are you wearing? Are you have do you have shorts on or do you have pants on? <laughs> well, a little known secret about Wade is he wears shorts all year round. Uh, I live in Illinois where it gets cold, and unless the temperature is below zero, I'm wearing shorts. Uh, it's okay. it's something that I'm guilty of. It goes back to my college days. I won't get into that backstory, but uh, over a beer sometime, I'll tell you those days. But uh, definitely um, goes back a long time for me. But, you know, with the whole purpose of this show is to kind of get to know our members a little bit better and let the audience kind of get to know who you are. I, so to start with, the easy question is, you know, tell me a little bit about your background. I mean, how did you get started in the food service industry and what brought you to being a food service consultant sure uh i'm born in japan um japanese uh, chinese immigrants to uh japan and i grew up in a restaurant my parents owned a chinese restaurant a very high-end chinese restaurant in tokyo so ever since i was able able to see over a bar top <laughs> i was the bartender so when i was literally in grade school the bar top would be somewhere around here <laughs> But even if the bar top were here, I could reach over the bar top with drinks. <laughs> and, and literally, I mixed drinks when I was in grade school where I could barely see over the bar top. Wow. And I did my homework at the empty tables. Yeah. Uh, my life was in the restaurant. I hopped table to table as the dining room got filled. Yeah. That's how I did my homework. <laughs> and as you probably know from most of us in this business, you know, you, you grow up in, in a hospitality business like that, and it really sticks with you. Yeah, yeah I agree. And unbeknownst to my parents, who were not intended to be restaurateurs, but immigrants to Japan who became restaurateurs, successful ones, but nonetheless, not, nothing they had intended to do. They had never, ever wished for their children <laughs> to become hospitality people. So like most um, immigrant uh, children, I grew up with my parents wishing and hoping that I became a, a Chinese-Japanese doctor. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I failed them in that regard. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I wound up um, so as to not become a restaurateur and a cook. Uh, I, I wasn't going to become a doctor. Yeah. So I wanted to go into architecture school. Fair enough. And, uh, I, I, I was uh, going to school in the, in the U S I, uh, I was admitted to Cornell's architecture school and I started my education in architecture for the simple reason that to a 17 year old, I like to draw. I heard that the uh, architects draw and get paid. 
<laughs> and that was good enough for me. That, that was good enough for you. That that was that was about all I knew about architecture. But I knew that um, you know design and art and drawing and things like that were things that I was interested in and mm -hmm. something that I probably had some semblance of talent in. Sure. So I went to architecture school and I was hell-bent on becoming an architect. But uh, three years into my architecture school, the economy crashed in one of the worst ways in the 70s that we can remember. Sure. And my friends who were fifth-year students graduating were uniformly unemployed. Okay. So were engineers. Interest rate was high. Uh, unemployment was really high. Nobody was borrowing money. Nobody was building anything. And architects and engineers were uniformly unemployable. Sure. Be and, and being a foreign student, my only status in the U.S. was as a student. And if I didn't get employment in my field of study, I would have to leave the country. Yeah. So I did some deep, deep thinking at the time. Um, I couldn't afford to finish architecture school. I was in my fourth year at that point. You know, I had two sure. years left. If I, if I finished and got, and, and got a degree in architecture and wound up unemployed, I would have to leave the country. So I decided to go to the hotel school at Cornell. Okay. Where all my partying friends went <laughs> and all the kids that were in the hotel school would say to me, Oh, Jimmy, you grew up in a restaurant. So if you wind up unemployed, don't worry, we'll hire you as a waiter in one of our restaurants. <laughs> and I thought, thought to myself, you know, five years of architecture, <laughs> a countless uh, all nighters. Yeah. Why would I wind up becoming a waiter at your restaurant? Yeah. <laughs> because, and they said, well, because we're going to have jobs and you're not. <laughs> And I said, well, you know, that that's that's a fair point. So I did a little research, and it turned out that kids out of uh, the hotel school at Cornell literally had three job offers each when they graduated. Wow. Okay. I mean, like, they were 100% employable. So I made this, uh, I, to me, an incredibly pragmatic decision. I left architecture school and transferred to the hotel school, which is sure. not something people did. You know, I, by the time you're in fourth year of architecture school, you, you don't quit. You know, you're you're kind of a lifer at that point. So it was a very um, not a not a, a decision that uh, the school, the the administration, certainly my parents. You know, nobody liked <laughs> the idea. They thought it was an utterly stupid idea, particularly for my parents, because going to the hotel school meant. I was going to wind up in the hospitality business. Sure. Not only not, not a, a doctor, doctor, not an architect, but back in hospitality. Right. <laughs> back in hospitality. And my parents were going, you, you people actually go to college to go into hospitality so you can become a rest. <laughs> you know, who does that? Right. Yeah. But sure enough, um, two years uh, later, I finished our uh, hotel school and one of the, uh, the, the, the classes I happened not to cut one day was a seminar that uh, introduced uh, alumni. And lucky for me, I didn't cut that class. And the speaker was John Cini. Very good. John Cini is an yep. alumni of Cornell and yep. he often supported the yeah. kids coming out of the school. And after the seminar, 
uh, well, actually, John, at the end of his seminar, he ended by saying, if any of you are interested in not being a assistant manager in a hotel or a restaurant, being at the bottom of the heap and want to do something technical, and if you can draw, you have some skills like that, come talk to me. Perfect. Though it was, it was like an amazing moment for me. So I went to talk to him. You don't get too many light bulb moments like that in life where something like that goes off. It, it, lucky wouldn't even begin to describe it yeah. for me. Yeah, absolutely. And I went to talk to John and uh, John says, so uh, why do you think uh, you can do this? I said, I know how to draw. You said uh, drawing was uh, what, what you needed. Sure. John says, why do you think you can draw? And I said, well, I, I finished three solid years of architecture school. He goes, oh, you can really draw. And I said, yeah, I can really draw. And he says, okay. It was like a Friday afternoon seminar. He says, okay, um, I'm going to fly you to to uh, Washington, D.C. Monday morning, I want you in my office for an interview. Really? So I spent the weekend with my in incomplete portfolio because, you know, I had no reason to have a portfolio at that point. Right. But I took all my drawings and made a portfolio out of it. Flew to D.C., interviewed first with John, second with Bill Eaton. <laughs> and at the end of the afternoon, they offered me a job, and that was the beginning of my wow. consulting career. I, I had no idea. It's amazing to me at all these interviews I've done how many times the name John Cine pops up. And I, well, I knew John uh, when I was first with FCSI. He was on the board, and sure. so I got to know him very well too. It's it's just amazing how much Cine Little the the firm plays oh. in so much of the food service consultants industry. There are many, of and us. I don't think, yeah, I don't think a lot of the younger members realize how many people came from that. That I mean, they were the go to, and they still are, but they they were the go to place for a lot of people to get their start. Oh, absolutely. And so. and I think, it, you know, certainly in those days, there weren't that many food service consultants right. around to begin with. Well, they all and worked for John, City Little. <laughs> right. And, you know, and a few years later, yeah. many of us became his competitors, right? Yeah. But yeah. At, the, at the time, we were the go-to company. Right. Without a doubt. Yeah, absolutely. So what with UE Design, what do you mainly focus in on? What are the, like, top three to five segments that you work in? Well, so, in, in honest, in all honesty, the reason I, I wound up leaving CINI was because my interest was really at the culinary end of the business. Sure. And, and as you can imagine, back in those days, food service consultants basically did BNI. Sure, of course. Kind of projects. That, that was the, the bread and butter of the business. So, you know, I, I did countless uh, executive dining facilities and staff cafeterias and, you know, all those kinds of things. And, and we had great clients. But once in a while, we would get a restaurateur. Yeah. And those were the guys that really, really turned me on. Yeah. And it was a different kind of work, a different kind of um, a product that you were trying to produce. Yeah. And I, I, I realized working for John that that's what really interested me. And, sure. and because it interested me, the, those kinds of projects that came into the house, I would always land. John and Bill would always have me do those projects. Sure. 
And, and eventually it occurred to me that uh, if I wanted to do those kinds of projects, I might just be better off going out on my own. Yeah. And, and that, that was really the impetus. Yeah. So from the very, very beginning, uh, my pursuit in this business was working for culinary people and restaurateurs, sure. uh, hospitality driven projects. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I like working for end users. I like yeah. having a purpose and a goal, um, generics or things that don't have very specific, um, uh, narratives and, and goals don't yeah. interest me as much. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, there's nothing wrong with it, right? You know, no, no, you, of course not. But you look, you've got some pretty high profile clients you've worked with. So yeah. I, you can certainly say that you found your niche in that area from getting out of I the did. BNI to the restaurant industry. So, you know, I, if people aren't aware, you've worked with some major celebrity chefs like Mario Batali. You created Italy with him. You've then yeah, I did uh, Jose Andres and Nobu and Morimoto and, and and the list goes on and on. Jimmy, it's it's really yeah. impressive, and I don't I don't know if everybody realizes how many you've worked with. But can you tell us what it's like to work with somebody that's a higher profile celebrity chef versus? you know, the, the mom and pop shop that you help out, is it, is it different or, you know, how does it work differently? Or is it, is an up and coming chef different than working with somebody like, you know, the, the PR that's going to be on Italy when it comes out, obviously. As far as, um, my work is concerned. Um, I think the, the, I think many of my colleagues would, uh, would agree that, Working for culinarians, the really, really big time guys, and, and celebrity doesn't isn't really what um, concerns me. Right. Um, the 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 thing about it is that the guys who get really, really famous and are are known to be very good at what they do, it's because they're really good at what they do, <laughs> exactly. and they're they have a right it's it and and the residual is that they some of them become public figures and all that kind of stuff sure but for me as a practice what what really makes a difference is the fact that those guys whether it's the thomas kellers or the jose andres or morimoto or any of those guys the they got there because they really do have a very strong narrative they have yeah. a product that they want to sell they have an idea that drives them yeah and what I love about working for guys like them is that they are like race car drivers and you're tuning their car so that they can do it really, really well. Nice. Right. It's, this is not a blind exercise, right? Yeah. Um, I often tell people that maybe what I do is more like what a tailor does. Okay. And that you're going to come to me and say, I want the perfect pink polka dot suit for this occasion. And my job is to understand what that means to you. Yeah. And my job is to make you the best pink polka dot suit that I can muster. Yeah. So that it fits you so yeah, that absolutely. it serves your purpose. Right. Yeah. So yeah. I think so much of what I do is trying to listen and understand, be in their shoes and try to really like, get into their head about how they function, how they think. Yeah. That's really the beginning for me. Sure. Absolutely. And that's what really, that that's what's interesting to me versus the younger chefs 
that I've inherited or have uh, have had the pleasure to serve, many of them I I wound up with them because they they were cooking in kitchens that I had designed for their master. Sure, absolutely. And and that's kind of a cool thing because there's a point of reference. Mm-hmm. I've had sh- chefs come to me and say, "I worked at such and such a place, and I liked this about that." kitchen that you did and my version is and there's a starting point there's a reference of I mean, they don't they they might not have the kind of capital that their masters had sure but functionally um aesthetically uh you know product wise their service wise yeah. what's what's really important to them i mean those are the ideas that you get to talk about right yeah, absolutely so th- th- those guys have a they tend to have a very, very clear narrative too. Nice. And then from there down, from down from there, it becomes less clear. Sure. And, and I find those to be the harder ones when the, when the client is less certain of their narrative, their product, the service that they are trying to provide and sell. Right. If if you're not clear on what it is that your story is and what's going to make you money, it's hard for me to give you the perfect suit. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, speaking of suits, so we get to see you in a pink polka dot suit the next time that we're at an FCSI event. Okay, very good, very good. So you know, living in Manhattan and Maryland, um, where you and your wife live, it, both of those areas have been pretty crushed by COVID. Um, it's been terrible. What's it going to take? like New York city and, and Baltimore and those to get back on their feet after this? Well, you know, in DC, um, as of, I believe next week, um, uh, restaurants are, uh, supposedly at a hundred percent capacity. Okay. Um, I think we, we've seen that the jurisdictions that have been less, uh, stringent or in turn, less careful about COVID and have had their doors open, have done ec- at least economically better than yeah. the places that were strict, right? Sure. Um, so in my mind, you know, as DC, the rules become looser and the government and consumers embrace the fact that it's okay to go to a restaurant, I think there's going to be pent up demand for good hospitality. I agree. I mean, Aren't you like, oh, are yeah. you like hard up? Oh man, I, I desperately want to have a nice meal in yes. a, you know, in a place that I, that I used to go to and, and Absolutely. at least have some semblance of not as much worry being there. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, you know, I'm a guy that uh, sat out in the middle of the, outside in the middle of the winter with overcoats and, uh, <laughs> and, and blankets. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, not only did I want to support my clients and my friends and restaurateurs, but I, I actually wanted to be out, you know, I, yeah, I didn't want to be constrained so much. Absolutely. So absolutely. I think we're going to see a surge and I'm hoping that that will be the impetus be enough for our industry to start to heal. Nice. Uh, you know, read a little bit more about you, Jimmy. And like I said, I've known you for quite a few years here. I, Doing some research, I found out and read a little bit. You may have been a little bit of a troublemaker in Japan. Oh, no. <laughs> and, and you came over in high school and ended up in yeah. Missouri, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Tell, tell me a little bit briefly. Oh, tell God. me a little bit about the rebel, Jimmy. Sure. 
Um, you know, it's it, actually <laughs> my parents are rebels. Of course, yeah, absolutely. Right? You know, they're they're immigrants. They they wound up leaving China during a very tumultuous time, wound up immigrants in Japan, started their own gig. I mean, took risks like absolutely real risks, you know, and, and they were, I, I grew up in a household where rules weren't, (laughs) were there to be broken in many, many ways. You, You know, like we, we, as a family, we didn't fit in. You know, we're, we're Chinese immigrants to Japan. Japan is not friendly to immigrants, honestly. Yeah. So that was the norm for me. And my parents were entrepreneurs. My, my, both my parents are, uh, were families of entrepreneurs. So I don't know if there's such a thing as a genetic predisposition to <laughs> being entrepreneurs, but I definitely grew up with one. Yeah. So by the time I was a teenager, before I got shipped off to Missouri, it was really because I had really pushed the envelope, yeah. um, you know, selling selling tax free cigarettes to bars at night and buying tax free liquor and <laughs> peddling it uh, in in restaurants and you know I, I had yes. a illegal motorcycle and <laughs> I would loan it to my friends and they would get arrested and I'd have to get them out of hock from the police station and but my parents figured out that I was in the middle of all of that and I wasn't getting caught but my friends were. Sure. And and they were they were finding my inventory in my coat closet, you know. My 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 parents confiscated my liquor inventory one day. Uh oh. I said, you know that I mean I had paid for it and that was my inventory to sell it. I said, what what where is it? He says, you're not supposed to have that. We're using it in the restaurant. So they they absorbed my inventory. And by the time I was doing that, my parents got really, really worried. And um, I got shipped off to Missouri to live with my father's sister, who's a, a professor at the WashU. Yeah, yeah. And they figured that uh, they figured that I would get an education living with uh, with a educational family in the middle of nowhere because St. Louis was middle of nowhere. Yeah, it was. I, I live close to there, so I can understand that. Um, and, and obviously it worked out well for you. It really worked out well for me. I, I owe my career and my education to my aunt who educated me and, uh, they were completely the reason I get a, got enough of an education to wind up at Cornell. Yeah, absolutely. I, I probably would have never, never gone to college if I hadn't left. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, again, it, it, if, if things work out for reasons and you have light bulb moments, you've had a few of them, obviously. So that's a, yes, it's a great thing. And me for one, I'm certainly glad that you got shipped out of Japan to St. Louis, Missouri to end up where you're at today. Cause it's uh, it's certainly an honor to get to know you. Um, that's the only that's the formal questions I've got for you. But okay. before before I let you go, Jimmy, I do like to end on a little bit more humorous note. So I've got a speed round and and basically there's some funny, dumb questions. And just tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay. What's your favorite breakfast cereal? I hate cereal. You hate cereal. It's amazing to me. I can't tell you how many consultants do not eat cereal. It's been crazy for me. Look, I, I'd rather have a bowl of rice, miso soup, and a piece of fish. <laughs> Understandable. And it's crazy to me. I might have to listen for FCSI, I may have to throw out that question because literally yeah. nobody has said that they like cereal yet in all the interviews I've done with it. Okay. So it's crazy. Anyway, fancy restaurant or local dive? Local dive almost all the time, but punctuated with fancy restaurants 
often sure. enough that, uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, you got to support your friends, like you said, right? Absolutely. What's a vice that you can't part with? Food. Puppies or kittens? Puppies. Do you sing in the shower? No, do not. What do you do when you get stuck in traffic to pass the time? Something illegal, which is look at my phone. (laughs) (laughs) Live on a moon base or live on a Mars base? Mars base. Okay. If you were given $1,000 to spend on your closest friend, what would you get them? Um, $1,000 for my closest friend would be the most fabulous bottle of champagne. Oh, good answer. Probably, probably that would uh, buy me a six liter, a big bottle. <laughs> exactly. Uh, would you consider yourself spontaneous or a planner? I am spontaneous by fault. Okay. Because I can't plan. If you were in charge of a company's vending machine, what would be the top three items you'd have in the vending machine? I would be like a Japanese vending machine, which would have things like uh, rice balls and pizza and real food coming out of it. Are you a morning person or a night owl? Night owl. Soft tacos or crunchy tacos? Soft. Uh, What's your guilty pleasure snack? My guilty uh, snack would be chocolate. Uh, Dark chocolate or milk chocolate? Or does it matter? Okay. Coke or Pepsi? Neither. Cookies or brownies? Cookies. Any particular kind? Homemade. Okay. Uh, are you a day planner kind of guy or a digital planner kind of guy? Digital. Well, that's all I've got for you today, Jimmy. Uh, t- tell people how they can find you, more about you, and get in touch with you. Oh, I'm, yeah, I'm uh, easiest to reach via my uh, website uh, at uvdesign.com. Um, there's, uh, there's a link that'll get you to me, and if... Uh, for all of uh, the FCSI members, I'm on the directory and fully reachable anytime for any any of our colleagues. Well, that wraps up this edition of On Tap presented by FCSI of the Americas. A huge thank you to Jimmy for joining us today. We can't do these shows without members like you. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, make sure to subscribe to the show wherever you find your favorite podcasts and make sure to turn on those notifications so you don't miss out on any future episodes. But until then... Cheers.